We're also in a series of lessons called Discovering the Mission of God. And we've been looking at the nature of the gospel. How is the mission of God carried out in that word? A lot of us grew up hearing, a lot of us have used, but I wonder how many of us really understand it. And I know that, especially the last two weeks, and today will be similar to that, is sometimes it gets pretty deep as you're thinking about, okay, what does the word gospel mean and how can we be proclaimers of it unless we really kind of have a good grasp of what's going on there? The word gospel literally means good news. That's the original meaning of it. And it had to do with the fact it was good news, but it wasn't good news in a personal sense or a local sense. It was good news in a worldwide sense that changed people's lives. You know, the end of World War II. V.E. Day, that was good news, that changed people's lives. Uh, when they announced that the first, you know, uh, uh, American, John Glenn, had gone around the planet. Wow, good news, that has changed a lot of lives. Now you think, well, it didn't change my life. Take my word, the technology did, that came out of that. I mean, I think about these great announcements of good news. Well, the greatest of all, of course, happened some 2,000 years ago. Now, one of the things I set out to do when we launched this about six weeks ago was to make sure that you understand that there are different components, aspects of the gospel. Don't confuse these. I still remember an older preacher who said to me, Les, you need to preach more gospel. I thought, are you kidding me? I'm constantly talking about the gospel. What he meant by that is we need to hear more good news. And the first aspect of the gospel is exactly that. It's good news. It's something that if people will listen to you, is going to change their lives. Where I got confused was I was spending a lot of time talking about the response to the gospel. I knew the good news. I'd been raised in the church. I knew who Jesus was. But the point of my preacher friend was, the world doesn't know that. You can't begin with the response. If you do, you get the cart in front of the horse. And so to pass out a card that here's the steps in the plan, in the gospel plan of salvation, without them knowing what the news is, I think you see the problem. And then there's the benefits. And we're going to cover all of these over the next two, two and a half months. Now, we began a couple of weeks ago, about three weeks ago, talking about what is the gospel. And in one word, one word, right in the center of the bullseye, if you want to describe the gospel, it's Jesus. That simple. Philip got up into the chariot with... God took on human flesh and came down here to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves is news that the world needs to hear, and his name is Jesus. That's why we talk a lot about the church of Christ. It's not the church of Christ. It's the church of Christ. You've got to put the emphasis in the right place. And, and so it begins with Jesus. And then last week, we talked about Jesus' suffering, his death and resurrection, and what he did at the cross, which leads us now to the third component of the good news, which is the kingdom of God. Now, you look at that and you go, really? Yeah. 
In fact, if you turn to the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but, but you get it in Acts, you get it in some in Paul as well, you get this good news of the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus coming and Jesus dying has produced something. And the Bible calls it the kingdom of God. And to understand it, you need to go back and kind of review where we've been since the beginning of, of the year. What was the good news through ancient Israel? Well, through uh, Abraham, it was that all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Now, Abraham didn't know much more than that. But Abraham knew that something was going to happen that would impact the entire world, and it was going to be through his lineage. We then draw a line to David. And David gets the same kind of promise that Abraham got, of where God said, listen, I'm going to establish your house, I'm going to establish your kingdom, establish forever. And so you get this Davidic covenant that somehow plays into this good news of the kingdom. But if there's a text of the Old Testament that speaks to this particular aspect, it's Daniel chapter 2. You see, if you'd lived a century, Daniel 2 was our Acts 2.38, our John 3.16. Daniel 2.44 was something that every Jew in the first century knew was fixing to take place. They could look at the kingdoms, the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of Medo-Persia, the, the kingdom of Alexander the Great, and then, of course, the Roman Empire. And they knew that Daniel had predicted that in the time of those kings, in the kings of the Roman Empire, God, the God of heaven, would set up a kingdom. And I love what he says here. It's a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. Now, what does that mean? simply means that they watched as Babylon became the property of the Medes and the Persians. And then the Persian Empire had become the property of the Greeks with Alexander the Great. And then the Romans had swept through. And now the Greek Empire becomes a part of the Roman Empire. These kingdoms kept basically disappearing and being absorbed by another people. Not so with this kingdom of God. It would be a kingdom that would last, notice there at the end, endure forever. And to understand it, you've got to understand this verse here. Daniel 7, 13, and then verse 14. Because here Daniel sees a vision about the beginning of this kingdom. Notice the language up there. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Now son of man, in the first century, is our word superman. I don't know how many of you grew up like I did. I guess you've got to be older to appreciate. Y'all remember the old Superman series, black and white, made back, I think, in the 50s, maybe, late? Get up on Saturday mornings to watch Superman. You know, faster than a speeding train. Shoot a bullet after him, he just bounces off. And, and I mean, wow, Superman. And so when you talk about Superman, everybody knows who you're talking about. Of course, it's been made into movie after movie after movie now. But in the first century, it was son of man. And notice the son of man. He's coming with the clouds of heaven. Language that if you go over to Acts 1 and you read about Jesus as he's descending back to heaven, the Bible says that a cloud, a cloud basically took him in. Notice the language there. He was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud 
hid him from their sight. And then he goes on to talk about angels. He said to the apostles, this same Jesus that you've seen go up will return in like manner. Now, you've got to get this scene in your mind if you're going to understand heaven text. Watch the next part of the text. He was coming with the clouds, but the point is, he's not coming this way. He's going that way. He's not coming to earth, he's coming to heaven. And notice, he's approaching the Ancient of Days, and he's led into his presence, Daniel said. And once in his presence, he's given authority, he's given glory, sovereign power, and all the nations and all the people are going to end up worshiping him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is one that will not be or never be destroyed. In Acts chapter 1, if you basically go from, from Passover to Pentecost, 50 days, Jesus is in the grave the first three days. Then after he's in the grave, he's raised from the dead, and he appears for 40 days, which is for now 43 days. Okay, 43 days, Jesus is either in the grave or on the earth, but on that 43rd day, he ascends back to heaven. One week before Pentecost, okay? He tells Peter and Andrew, James and John, you guys stay here in Jerusalem. They've got to stay one week. And while there, as they're wondering what in the world is going on, the most amazing thing in heaven is happening. Jesus is arriving. Escorted by angels. Coronation takes place. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're replacing Judas Iscariot. They're wondering what in the world God's going to do. The rest of the world down here is going on like it always had. But up there, they've got a coronation as the Ancient of Days welcomes his son. The Lamb of God comes to the throne. There's a throne beside the Ancient of Days. And Jesus takes his place there as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's something most of us don't think about. We don't talk about it. But it's the beginning of the greatest kingdom and the only kingdom that will survive. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, he knows what's fixing to take place. And look at his preaching. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Repent. Why? The kingdom of heaven, it's here. It's about to be established, just like Daniel predicted it would. He went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming what? The gospel. The gospel of the kingdom of God. It would be a gospel that would continue through the book of Acts. Philip goes up to Samaria. Guess what he preaches? The good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so what is the kingdom? What do we mean with that language? Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, you see it all over the place. By the time you get to Paul, Paul's going to switch words. We're going to talk about that here in a moment. But it's kingdom all the way through the ministry and life of Jesus. And if I could define it as simply as I could, the kingdom of God consists of those individuals who have pledged allegiance and submitted to Jesus of Nazareth as Lord and King. 
There's a word that we need, to, we need to get a better understanding of. We call ourselves the church of Christ. It's a good word. It's a good phrase. It comes straight out of Romans 16, 16. The problem is Christ doesn't mean anything to us. I mean, if you ask the average person on the street, what, what does the word Christ mean? And their response is, well, it's Jesus' last name. I mean, it's like Blake, Blake Parker. You know, Les Chapman. You know, if you ask someone, what does Chapman mean? Most people don't even know what Chapman means. People say, what did, where did you get A Chapman in England was a salesperson. It's what the Chapman was. He was the guy that you'd say, the next time the Chapman comes along, we'll buy some pots, some, you know, whatever you need to buy. The Chapman was the salesman that made his way through the villages. And so somewhere people began to be known as, oh, that's less the Chapman. It's kind of like John the Smith. You know, Smith's not a name, it's a function, it's a job. Christos is not a name, it's a title. And I love the way the voice translates it in Acts 2.36 because they get it right. Everyone in Israel, Peter said, should now realize with certainty what God has done. God has made Jesus both Lord and the anointed king. That's what Christos means. The one who has become king of kings and lord of lords. And that's who Jesus is. And so what does it mean to be in the kingdom? It means you proclaim Jesus as your king, as your Lord. You pledge allegiance to him, and you accept the responsibility of following him. A little bit bigger picture than a lot of the language we grew up with. And we'll look at this word church here in a moment, but, but we have focused more on church than we have on kingdom. Now, are they interchangeable? In a degree, they are. But in reality, kingdom is a much bigger concept than the word church is. We'll talk about why Paul switched to that here in just a moment. And so, last week, we asked, why the cross? What was going on there at Calvary? And basically, what I suggested is, everything was going on. In fact, it's impossible to describe with one word what happened from the time Jesus was nailed to the cross to when he came out of the grave. New Testament writers used everything from justification, reconciliation, redemption, atonement, victory, salvation, and this is just the hem of the garment. More happened in those three days than we could ever wrap our minds around because it's the great mystery of God. But in so many ways, so is the kingdom. I mean... Why the kingdom? What, what is God doing here? And to understand that, you need to go back to Paul. Paul in 2 Corinthians probably does as good a job as any to say, here's why the cross is here, and here's why the kingdom is here. Let's look at the two. He begins with, therefore, if anybody is in Christ, if anyone has pledged allegiance, obeyed the gospel, they are now in Christ, new creation has come. Love that language. The old the new is here. This is the tree of life version, Jewish version. Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, if anyone is in the King, King Jesus, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are be have become new. And of course, that ultimately fulfilled when Jesus 
comes back the second time. Then here's the cross. I mean, as it's possible, he says, all of this is from God. Why? Because God was, notice the language here, reconciling us. God's doing the work, doing for us what we can't do. God was reconciling us back to himself. How? Through Jesus and what he did at Calvary. There's that center part of the gospel. But then notice why. It's this next phrase that becomes important. Why the cross? Because God's reconciling us. But he's reconciling us for a purpose. And look at what he says. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation, of redemption, of justification. This message of the cross. He's given it to us. Why? Because we are there for Christ ambassadors if we don't let this sink in to every one of us we'll never understand what our role is in the kingdom we Paul said not me we are ambassadors an ambassador if you watch the news we appointed our first ambassador to Ukraine in three or four years and, of course, what's, what's an ambassador? Well, dictionary.com says an ambassador is a diplomatic official of the highest rank sent by one sovereign or state to another as its resident representative. Okay. Let's translate that in language I can understand. Put very simple, what he's saying is when we become followers of Jesus, we're citizens of a new country. I thought we were citizens of America. We are. But let me tell you that American citizenship is here. Our citizenship with God is way up here. You see, citizenship as an American is simply a part of a country that will eventually be destroyed. All the nations of the earth are going to be destroyed. Why? Because the kingdom of God is going to be taking over. And we're citizens of this country. And our role is to be ambassadors of God here. Ambassadors in our family, ambassadors in our community, ambassadors at school, ambassadors at work. As we say to people, be reconciled to God. Become a part of His kingdom. So this kingdom of God takes on itself so many different shapes. It's one of the things I love about the New Testament, very much like the atonement. You know, how do you understand the atonement? Well, you can look at it this way, this way, this way, this way, this way. The kingdom of God's the same way. For instance, the first thing that Paul will say that we need to understand is, is that it's the household of God. It's more than a kingdom. We become family. Notice the language here in Ephesians. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners or strangers. There, basically, the word is aliens. I mean, we all know about aliens, right? Aliens are those people who live south of the border, who keep trying to sneak up across. June and I made it several years ago. You know, everybody think that that wall was between the United States and Mexico. No, it was between Tennessee and Mississippi, trying to keep people from Mississippi from coming across. We got across. You know, we're now citizens of Tennessee. We're not aliens. We're not foreigners. We're fellow citizens. Notice the language there. We're part of the kingdom of God. But it's more than that. He says, but we're also members of his household. Which is meant to say 
we've got to learn how to live as brothers and sisters. With God as our Father. Now some of you are only children. If you're an only child, only children, only child. Yeah, that didn't come out right, Blake. Caught that and right as I say, I don't think it's possible to be an only children. You're an only child. I, I was one of four. Which meant that I had to learn how to live with two brothers and a sister. And let me tell you that that's an interesting relationship. I like what one person said. I, I love this artist's work. Families are like fudge, mostly sweet, but it's got a few nuts as well. Right? I mean, you get in the family and you're like, wow, what in the world is going on here? But I love what the Hebrew writer says. He says, listen, it had to be that the one who basically makes us holy and those who are being made holy are from the same family. That's the reason for the incarnation. That's the reason for Jesus. But notice what he goes on to say. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. I still remember one day I'm out walking, I'm processing a lot of stuff going on in my head at the time. And I'm dealing with this whole concept of the judgment day. I don't know why I got focused on the judgment day, but I did. And then it dawned on me, what would it be like? What would it be like to have to go before a judge only to walk in and guess who the judge is? Your older brother. I mean, can you picture that scene of where you're like, oh no, I'm in trouble, and all at once you walk in, and your older brother's the one sitting in the judgment seat. And the first thing he says is, last man, how you doing? It's been a long time. And I look at my older brother, and many of you know I lost an older brother when I was 17 years old. His name was Rex. And I've oftentimes thought that if I looked and there was Rex sitting there as the judge and he looks at me and he says, man, it's been a long time. How you been doing? Well, Rex, I've struggled a lot. You struggled a lot when you were young. Well, I didn't always do what I was supposed to do. I kept trying to tell you that. Well, I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, guess what? I'm the judge. I'm the one that pronounces sentence. Makes all the difference in the world. When your family. And so he says we're part of a family. But then number two, he says, and, and we're called out. There's the word that we use all the time, it's the word church. I don't know that the church, word church communicates as well this image of the kingdom of God as it should. The word literally means called out. It had to do with community in the first century. They would call out the ecclesia. Y'all come out, we need to have a town hall meeting. That's kind of the image that you get here. But what we get is this language coming from John in the book of Revelation. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her. And you get this invitation, or not invitation, literally this plea for God's people to come out of the world. Now you need to understand something. It's not come out of the world in the sense of separating from the world. It's come out of the world by not being a part of the world. Here's the way Jesus prayed it in John 17. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. In other words, God, Jesus says, I want you to leave them there. They need salt. The world needs salt. It needs light. But protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world. I'm not of the world. And by the way, as you've sent me into the world, I'm sending them 
into the world. Imagine if you would, if God were to come to us right now and said, I need an ambassador, and I need an ambassador for eastern Ukraine. And we're like, wait, wait a minute, eastern Ukraine? Yeah. Where all the, all the fighting is going on? Yeah. Where, where they're sh launching shells, and they're launching shells, and they're bombing, and they're bombing. You want me to go there? Yeah. Okay, and, and, and what am I going to do? You're going to try to bring peace. And I'm like, you, you do know that those peacemakers are the ones that get shot at by both sides. Yeah, I know that. My son found out at the cross. But I'm going to be with you. And so I'm sending you out. By the way, what's happening in eastern Ukraine pales in comparison with what's happening in your neighborhood and in my neighborhood. What's happening among the people that you work with, even among the people that I work with here. You want to talk about a war? Ukraine doesn't know what a war is. It's the war that we're involved in where Satan's throwing everything he's got at us, trying to destroy us as we're trying to be ambassadors of Christ to the world. That's the war we're involved in. And it's been waging for over 2,000 years now. And that's what he's called us to go into. The body of Christ. In other words, Jesus says, listen guys, I'm back with the Father. But I need someone to be my mouth. I need someone to be my eyes. I need someone to be my hands. I need someone to be my voice. Are you willing to be my body? That's what Jesus is asking of us. And every one of us in here, if you have pledged allegiance to Jesus, you're a piece of that body. Now, you may be like me. I think I'm a toenail, and I think most of the time I'm ingrown. But at least I'm a toenail. I'm trying to do something for the kingdom of God. And that's what he's calling us to. Be my presence. You are my ambassadors. Please serve me. And you're a royal priesthood. I, I love this passage here from Romans 12, where Paul talks about the fact that we are, notice right in the middle there, we're living sacrifices. I love what one theologian said about living sacrifices because it so oftentimes describes my life. He said the problem with living sacrifices versus dead sacrifices. You see, if I kill a lamb, and this is an altar, and I take a dead lamb and place it on the altar, it stays there. But when God takes me, a living sacrifice, and puts it on the altar, I keep trying to crawl off. Right? You ever felt that way? That God's calling you to sacrifice your life and you keep crawling off the altar as if to say, God, maybe not just yet. And yet he's called us to be these living sacrifices. And by the way, when I think about this church and I think about how it is sacrificing itself, when, when I think about people who serve in room in the inn, preparing meals, setting out beds, going to pick up the homeless, trying to share with them a little bit about Jesus Christ. When I think about what we heard last week about the medical uh, equipment ministry and how that people just every week's calling here going, do you have a wheelchair? Do, do, do you have this? Do you? I mean, when Ann got up last week and talked about, hey, we need this back, and the lady looked puzzled at her, and she said, is that a problem? She said, I'm sending it to Cuba. 
Well, then I tell you what, you just keep it down there. When I think about what we do in this community back here with the manor, trying to say to people, if you don't have a place to live because you just simply don't have financial blessings, we'll try and provide a place like that. Our, our preschool program where we've got people who have signed up who can't get in. Why? Because we don't have enough teachers, we don't have enough space, but everybody in the community knows they're making a difference. When I think about the, the counseling ministry over here and the expansion of it, and I'm excited about where we are as we're moving forward, saying to a community, we're here for you. If you need mental health care, go over here and see Brian Shepherd and, and the people who are going to be serving over there. Brothers and sisters, we are these living sacrifices making a difference, which leads me to the last one, and that, are, that is that we are the bride of Christ. It's this one. It's this one that gets me. You, you turn over to Revelation, and Revelation describes this marriage feast that's coming. And I want you to notice the language here. Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. There is the fact that the kingdoms of the world are becoming the kingdom of our God. Let us rejoice, be glad, give Him glory. Why? For the wedding of the Lamb. There's that Jesus right in the middle. The wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And then John says, fine linen stands for the righteous act of God's holy people. Listen to me very carefully. There are a lot of other images that we could bring into play. What is the kingdom of God? It's a hospital. It's a hospital for broken people where they can go and get help. What is the kingdom of God? It's a ministry to help the poor. Those who can't pay for their electric bill, who can't find a place to live, who can't put gas in their car, is a place to reach out to them and say, there's a people here who cares? It's a place for the addicted, who Satan has just gotten a stranglehold on, and they're like, all I want to be do, I, I want to experience this freedom from this addiction. And we've got to be the people of God who says there's freedom found in this group of people. And, and of course, you could just add more and more images of what is the kingdom of God. But at the end of the day, listen to me, brothers and sisters, it is a hodgepodge of people bringing all the baggage from their experiences in the world and saying to God, I offer this. I, I, I repent from that which has alienated me from you, and I want you to transform me back into your image. Because of that, the church is always going to be broken. Because I'm a broken minister. I don't have it all together. If you think I do, you just haven't hung around me very much. And we've got broken elders, and we've got broken de deacons, and ministry leaders, and teachers, and, and members, all broken. And so when people come in and they say, this church has got problems, hallelujah, amen. You see, the church at Corinth wasn't an anomaly. The church of Corinth is the way it is. We're always going to be messed up. Always. I still remember the brother who came to me one day and said, I want to leave this church and go to one where, where there's no broken people in it. 
And I wanted to say, in the moment you join it, you done ruined it. Because that's the only church that exists. And God looks at us, and Jesus looks at us, and Jesus says, that's my bride. I don't feel much like a bride. That's because you haven't put on the wedding gown yet. You see, Jesus provides that cleansing, that healing. He provides everything we need to make us perfect in His sight so that guess what we become? The bride that's simply waiting for Him to come back. And so you can look for a church that doesn't have problems and simply go from church to church to church to church to church. Or you can decide to simply be a member of the kingdom of God. Joining with other imperfect people, serving a perfect king who one day will come back to make us perfect at the end of time. That's the invitation. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's make a difference in Hendersonville, Tennessee as the church of the king. And if you need to pledge allegiance to Jesus, why not do it? Why not surrender to him right now as we stand and sing?